0: This evening, we're going to continue with our look at the ancient nation of Israel. Last week, we looked at the beginning of the monarchy, when they said, we want to be like the other nations, give us a king, please. Well, initially, they were a united monarchy, and that's what we're going to look at this evening, the united monarchy. Uh, And that only lasted for a period of about 100 years, just under 100 years. And then they split into two, which we'll cover next week. But at its greatest extent, the united monarchy would have looked something like that. So not only did it have uh, Judea and Samaria, and the Galilee, and the Negev Desert, but it also had parts of Jordan, which was part of Ammon. Um, And parts of Moab as well at the bottom over there. So under King Saul, but mostly under King David, he expanded the borders quite a lot. And uh, King Solomon as well uh, ruled over this period of the United Monarchy when Israel was quite a formidable force back in the day. They were renowned in the ancient Near East. Not as a particularly powerful great nation, but they were, they were, some, some they were to be reckoned with. you know. <laughs> uh, they weren't taking what didn't belong to them, but they did take what did belong to them. And that's, that's what it would have looked like. So I do want to cover some of this history, which is significant, so I'm going to run through this before we get to our brief points. So look at the formation, which we covered in more detail last week, when we were introduced to Saul as the first king. Let's remember that this was the first executive government in Israel. So up until this time, with the period of judges, they didn't have a government, they didn't have an established uh, law and order. They kind of just did as they saw fit in their eyes, and every now and then kind of went back to God's word under the judge. So now Saul is the first head of an executive government in the promised land. This is now El Presidente in charge. And we know that it started mostly because of the pressing Philistine problem. Israel, the tribes were worried about their borders, they were worried about their safety, and so they thought a king would have been the best way to protect them to organize themselves to protect them against this threat. And they could see that the Philistines had a central government. The Philistines were well organized, and the Philistines had better weapons. And they also had, I don't know if they had a king, but they would have had a a ruler. They would have had an emperor of sorts. It is no surprise then that King Saul's reign is characterized by his military motive. He's introduced as a military man. David even more so. But Saul is just, whenever we meet him, he's always fighting. He's always got issues (laughs) within his own soul, but also against other nations. He's introduced as tall and handsome, which are attributes of a strong, physically able man. So he looks like the best outward choice for a king. Remember we spoke of this was God's uh, example to Israel of what their plan for a monarchy would have looked like. Tall and handsome and proud and able. But unfortunately, this also leads him to be confident in his own ability. If you meet a tall and proud and handsome young man, uh, sometimes he might find his uh, pleasure and his desire in himself. We often find that's the case. And a lot of political parties nowadays are built around a central figure. I, I wouldn't call, let me not name names, But I I wouldn't call certain politicians tall and handsome. (laughs) But the idea is they've got something going for them that they've built, it's mostly a personality cult. A lot of these political parties, it's built around one person. This is what happens when you build it around the outward things. You become the central figure. You become the important one. You become God. So he becomes confident in his own pride and ability. And early on in his reign, we can see how he disobeys God publicly. In 1 Samuel 13, he has a battle and he offers an unlawful sacrifice. Samuel was supposed to do it, but Saul decided to get it done. And we'll often see Saul's characteristic problem is that he doesn't want to wait for things to be done right. He thinks if he can get them done, it will mean the same thing at the end of the day. And we see that as well with when he confronts the diviner. He needs help, so he goes to the diviner to try to get help from the spirit of Samuel. He, he doesn't want to wait for answers. He wants to do it now and do it his way. Then secondly is public disobedience. We've seen uh, 1 Samuel 15. God tells him to wipe out the Amalekites, and he does not do that. He keeps the choice cattle and sheep, and he spares the king a god, Agog. At this point, God rejects Saul as king, and Saul gets sad and sulky. And we read about that in uh, 1 Samuel 15, 27 to 29. And Saul tried to leave, Sa- Samuel tried to leave rather, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. And that is David. David. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. And that's in contrast to Saul, who is very wishy-washy. Saul is not the glory of Israel as much as he might think he is, but God is the glory of Israel, and he does not lie or change his mind, and he has decided to rip the kingdom away from Saul. Uh, There's a very strong motif of tearing and ripping apart, which I want us just to have at the back of our minds as we go through this. There's something very uh, prominent about tearing and ripping when talking about the kingdom. So we see that our united monarchy at this stage is not looking so united, and we can know that Saul is probably not going to let David win without a fight or without being a little bit jealous and proud along the way. Uh, But we know that Saul does meet his demise with his son Jonathan, uh, and ultimately, while he does experience initial success, he turns his back on God, and we see problem starting. That leads us to a mini civil war. And we see in 2 Samuel 2, David is crowned king over Judah, which is just one tribe. And Saul's son, Ish-bosheth, is crowned king over Israel, which are the other tribes. So we see there's already a little bit of a split here. Judah has selected David, but the other tribes are still going with Saul's dynasty. So what happens is, David serves as a mini king. The other 11 tribes follow Saul's son, This is an important foreshadowing, as we shall see, because eventually the kingdom gets ripped into two, and it's along similar lines. But we'll get to that. So what happens is Ish-bosheth is assassinated. The other tribes get a little bit lost for a while, and then they eventually go and negotiate with Daniel, uh, with David, rather. They see, okay, here's a king in Judah. We are, we have an issue. Let's go negotiate with him. He looks like he's got his stuff in order. So what's interesting to note here is what they say to him. And let's look at that. 1 Samuel 5, 1 to 3. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, which was his capital at the time. Before Jerusalem, David was stationed in Hebron. And he said, behold, we are your bone and flesh, which means you are an Israelite like us. Previously, when Saul was king of us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will, be my sh- you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a leader over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord in Hebron. Then they anointed David as king over Israel. They recognized David as king for a few reasons here. Firstly, David is an Israelite. It's a good place to start. We don't want an Amalekite reigning over us. Secondly, they noticed that even during Saul's reign, David is the one who displays leadership. David is the one who leads the country out and in. That's quite a profound statement to say about someone. Even during, you know, we've got a king, but you the chap who's leading the nation out and in. Thirdly, they confirm that the Lord himself chose and appointed David. We can see the Lord said to you, you will be my shepherd over my people Israel. Aha, what is this sounding like? Remember last week? This is more like God's choice for a king. This is more like God's choice as opposed to Israel's choice. So David is anointed king, he moves on the Jebusite stronghold of Jerusalem in order to establish an eternal capital, a stronghold for this once again united nation. And this leads us into the golden age. Often in historical circles, they'll talk about the golden age of the Israelite monarchy. And that's where we come to now, the fully united monarchy under David. So many advancements, successes, he captures Jerusalem, establishes a capital there, brings the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem which is important because he's also saying this is now where it's at previously the ark of the covenant was in altars i think at um, bethel was it at bethel or somewhere else up there with but the ark of the covenant wasn't in a stationary place the philistines even captured it later on in first i mean earlier on in first samuel and they have problems with it So David brings the Ark of the Covenant saying, this is now where our spiritual home is going to be. That's an important thing. And Solomon, which we'll read or see later, builds the first temple, which is really now a declaration. And David expands Israel's borders and he establishes a strong Davidic dynasty. He establishes control over Israel. Through David, God also fulfills his promises to Abraham. We can see that happening. You will have many descendants and they will live in this land that I am giving to you. We are seeing that happening now. This was a good time to be alive in Israel. 1 <laughs> Samuel 811 to 14 King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, what he had captured, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Edom and Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. This is the important bit that sums it up for us. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. He was also a military man, but he was successful. And he was taking Israel's territory that God had promised to them. And he was subduing the other nations as well. They became client kingdoms. You know what we'll see about later on in the New Testament, the Roman Empire controlled Judah, but Herod was still king. He was like a puppet. And we'll see that David starts doing this as well. That's how powerful and influential this new united monarchy is. However, we also know that David committed severe sins and receive due penalty. As a result of his sexual immorality, God punishes him in the form of turmoil in the latter half of his reign. First Samuel 12, 9-10. Second Samuel, sorry, 12, 9-10. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Why have you despised the word of the Lord? It doesn't start with Israel. It doesn't start with your family. It doesn't start with the kingdom. This thing starts with God. You're not causing trouble in your kingdom. You're causing trouble with God. And because of that, there's going to be trouble in your kingdom. You have struck and killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife as your wife. And you have slaughtered him with the swords of the sons of Ammon. Now then, the sword shall never leave your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David wasn't allowed to build the temple. He wanted to, but he wasn't allowed to build the temple because God called him a man of blood. He was, he was too military, militarily motivated, and he had troubles like this. So God said, you can't build the temple, but your son will. This also does not mean that everything went wrong in the kingdom. It just means that David had to deal with a rebellious son who tried to mutiny against him, Absalom. He also conducts a census, which is said to be sinful. That is because the census was used in the ancient world to determine how many men you have to conscript, you know, basically what's our military strength. Or it could be to levy taxes. So for whatever reason, it seems that David is starting to put his trust in his military strength or his economic strength. So that's why that census is called sinful. As a result of that, God sends a plague that kills 70,000 men in three days. So these are troubled times for David, but it does not cause the nation to be torn. We don't read about the nation being torn from David. It's not ripped from the Davidic dynasty. There's trouble in the nation, but David hasn't forsaken the Lord to the extent that he rips the kingdom away from him. Maybe it just causes it to get shaken up a little bit. David dies and Solomon is anointed king. David was in charge of ushering in the Golden Age. Solomon is in charge of keeping his hold on it. There's peace. There is prosperity. There is uh, a sense of national pride. Things are going all right, at least initially. Initially, it starts off well. Solomon asks for wisdom. And as a result, God also gives him wealth. His greatest accomplishment is the first temple in Jerusalem. He unites the nation behind this massive project to build this temple in Jerusalem. He imports the finest timber from Lebanon. He gets all the most skilled craftsmen to come and build this thing. And so they, they really gear up behind this national project. It's, an, it's a unifying factor. And that's important too because this is, this is a house for God with them in Jerusalem. This is now their spiritual home, and they are working together to get it done. Becomes the official site, too, of sacrificial worship. This is now where you go to atone for your sins and offer up sacrifices. Solomon, too, also goes astray. He marries many women in order to keep the international peace and relationships and the good economy. But these wives turn his heart away from God. Solomon stops purposing his role for the Lord. He builds uh, altars for idols, the idols of his wives. He sets up altars in the land. And we see here that the kingdom starts to deteriorate and split into two, which we shall cover next time. Okay, so that's just the historical part of it. So what can we learn from Israel's united monarchy? And it all ties up into one central thing. The people need a godly leader. The people need a leader who's going to be faithful to God, who's going to be faithful to his purposes as the Lord has given it to to him, and a leader who's going to lead his nation in the ways of God. It starts with a godly leader. They wanted to stay united. They needed a godly leader to keep them united behind one purpose of walking in God's ways. So, what did they need a godly leader for? Firstly, to mend divisions. People are different. We have different languages, cultures, preferences, conventions. The Americans drive on the right-hand side of the road. We might think that's wrong, and we want to believe that's wrong. That's philistine behavior, but it's just a different convention. Some people eat with chopsticks. Some people eat with knives and forks. Some people eat with their hands. It's conventions. That stuff doesn't matter to our moral, our morality, our moral state of being. Call it the law of, um, of human, uh, nat- uh, natural law, the natural law of human behavior. See, if I had to speak, sit in a Korean-speaking church, you know, I'm not going to cope very well but that's good for some people. It all boils down to preferences a lot of the time as well. But the problem is differences become divisions. They do not have to mean divisions, but with our sinful nature, with the enemy who's crafty, he's going to use those differences to turn them into divisions. Our sinful nature wants strife, wants division. We don't want to be a unified body we don't want to be a unified people. And so we tend to make these differences divisions. But with God, there can be no divisions. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There are no division, divisions between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There can't be divisions there, otherwise this thing's not going to work. Galatians 3.28 There's neither Jew nor Gentile, we know this one, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. It's not saying there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there are no slaves, there are no free people. There are. We are Gentiles. There are Jews in Israel. I'm assuming most of us are free and not slaves. Uh, And most of us belong to either the male category or the female category unless you identify something in between, which I hope you don't. But with Christ Jesus, those don't matter. Yes, there are differences, we can see them there, but with Christ, they don't matter, you're all one. Romans 124 5 I, l- I love this analogy that Paul gives us as well. For each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Praise God that our backside doesn't do the same thing as our mouth. Because then we've got a problem. <laughs> Praise God that we don't have two left hands. Praise God that w- our, our hands don't do the same thing as our feet. So, but it's all one body. Even though there are different things that have to happen, and they do have to happen, there need to be differences, Because we're all unique, we have different purposes, God's given us each different things to do, but there needs to be unity in the body. The 12 tribes of Israel could not always get along. Even there, we can see them not getting along. It's not always evident to us what exactly they fought about. We can read in Judges that they had a problem with the tribe of Benjamin, I think because they refused to go out against a certain group of people. But they split into two kingdoms, now, this chosen holy people of God splits into two kingdoms. Obviously, something's gone wrong. Obviously, there have been differences that have been turned into divisions. However, when Saul, David, and Solomon were faithful, when they were operating behind the godly purposes, the divisions were mended. And they were mended by their mission to be God's people. Israel is a missional people. We've spoken about it. I say it every week. They were there to be a holy, chosen, set-apart nation of God to demonstrate His glory to the people, to the nations of the world, people around them. And when they had that mission, when they were focused on that mission, when their leaders purposed them for that mission, the differences didn't become divisions. They didn't matter because there was unity in the body. And we need that in the church as well. We can't have divisions in the church. We need to have a common mission here. If you are here because you are part of a group that comes to church, and you aren't getting fed in that sense, you're just coming because everybody else comes, or if you're here and planning to go a certain way, or you're here because you identify as non-denominational instead of Anglican, and that means a lot to you because the Anglicans are absolutely incorrect, or whatever the thing is, that's a problem. We can't have that in the body. Yes, where there's false doctrine and teaching, we call it out, absolutely. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is being one in Christ, being unified in Christ. If you're coming here with with an intention to make the differences that we have mean something, then there's a problem. When we come to church, yes, we have different languages, we have different cultures, we have different backgrounds, we have different aspirations. Absolutely, that's true. You're all wearing different clothes this evening. Praise God for that. But as soon as we start to make those things matter, we have division. And then we have a problem. Anyways, back to Israel. We see in Ezekiel 34 23 to 24. Then I'll set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. My servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. What is important here? One shepherd, one feeder, one prince, all for the Lord who has spoken, for his purposes. Are there fat sheep, thin sheep, tall sheep, short sheep, American sheep, Vietnamese sheep? Sheep who eat with their hooves and sheep who drink tea with their pinky raised. Of course. But the emphasis is on one shepherd. Who is our shepherd? Christ Jesus. Do the sheep create division out of their differences? Do we sheep see sheep forming little groups and things? Not to the extent that they neglect their shepherd. They have one shepherd, and when the shepherd says, go out and come back, they do that. And if they don't do that, the shepherd sends his dog to bring them back. (laughs) But the point is, they're going to come back because the shepherd said so. We need to suppress the impulses to make differences a matter of division, and we require leaders who can do that. If a leader can stand up and say, we're different, but fight the impulse to make that a division. We aren't going to divide you guys. Get it together. And a leader can only do that when he or she's got a united purpose, a united mission to serve the purposes of God. Amen. Secondly, a godly leader to pursue righteousness. They needed a godly leader to pursue righteousness. Righteousness in Second Samuel twenty two, twenty one twenty three. You read the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not acted wickedly against my God. This is David speaking. For all his ordinances were before me, uh, and for as for his statutes, I did not depart from him. Was David a perfect sinless man? No. Did he always keep God's ways? No. Of course not. But if we look at the context here, this is when David is spared from Saul. He writes this psalm. We know David acted righteously in that he did not lay a hand upon the Lord's anointed. When Saul was after David, David did not try to get back at Saul. His actions were righteous. So we need to talk about my righteousness here, because that's obviously the issue in this verse. And the Bible speaks about two kinds of righteousness that we can see. And that's firstly the pure, sinless righteousness that only Christ has. Christ lived a pure, sinless, righteous life. 2 Corinthians five twenty-one. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This kind of righteousness is alien to us. For he has clothed us with this kind of righteousness. This is the righteousness we need to be right with God. That we need to spend an eternity with him. But it's not ours. It's alien to us. It's Christ's. And it's Christ's alone. But because he died on our behalf. When we accept him. When we believe in him. When he is our savior. He clothes us with that righteousness. Remember we spoke about the Passover. It's his blood that is painted on the doorposts of our hearts. God doesn't see what's inside. He just sees his son's blood. Then the second kind of righteousness is a righteousness of obedience and intention to follow God's laws. This is when faithful children of God behave in the manner they ought to, speak in the way they ought to, serve in the way they ought to, and love in the way they ought to. Titus 2, 11, 12, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensib- sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. This is living right. This kind of righteousness is living according to what God wants us to be doing. This is the kind of righteousness that we see in uh, when David talks about his righteousness. He's not saying I'm perfect and pure and sinless. He's saying my actions were righteous. I didn't do anything that went against God's laws and ways. And I know that because of that, God spared me. God looked after me. God made a plan for me. And the point is this. Leaders who pursue righteousness are blessed and stable and looked after by God. And we need leaders who are going to pursue righteousness. Firstly, in their private lives and then in their public lives, a leader who sets the example in righteousness will have his people follow that example. That can be the first kind of righteousness. If you are an outspoken believer and you're leading a group of people, chances are probably a little bit better that they will come to know the Lord. We could do a study on that. But especially if you have a leader who is doing what he's supposed to be doing, living how he's supposed to be living, not taking bribes, not shouting and swearing and making a fuss about our differences and causing division, but a leader who's setting an example in righteousness and in his intention to obey God's law, to live uh, righteously how God would want him to live. That's an example that people need to follow. If, If our pastors here at Ebenezer were the draw of the party every Saturday night, you'd probably also want to go to the party on Saturday night and see what's going on. And jo- <laughs> at man's down the road. There. <laughs> is that why you're always complaining about the noise? <laughs> but if we have a leader who's early to church, who's speaking the word of God, who's leading his people in God's ways, that's the kind of example that people need to follow. That's the kind of leader that Israel needs, needed, and the kind of leader that the church needs. It doesn't have to be the pastor. It doesn't have to be the deacon or the elder or the bishop. It starts with us, with your families, with your friends at work. We're all godly leaders because we're setting an example for others, because we are living in that mission to be God's people to be God's chosen people. Thirdly and lastly, they needed a godly leader to build God's kingdom. And the reason behind this one is simple. You can spend all your time, energy, and love, blood, sweat, tears, whatever. Um, you can, and money as well, it's a big one. But you can spend everything you have on building your own kingdom. And perhaps it might be successful for a while. Often you about, very successful businessmen talking about how they started from nothing and built this thing out of scratch. What's going to happen when you close your eyes for the last time? What's going to happen when you breathe your last breath? might continue for a time, but it has to come to an end eventually. If not because of the national lockdown, because Christ is coming again. And the point is, is only what's done for Christ will last. Psalm 127 verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Saul was a military man, but he couldn't deal with the Philistines, even after initial success. That's because he started to trust in himself. He started to trust in his own kingdom, in his ability to build his own kingdom. When David lost sight of the Lord, he ordered the census To either find consolation in his military capability or economic prosperity from taxation, he was trying to build his own kingdom. When Solomon started setting up uh, altars because his wives led him astray, he was building his own kingdom. He was trying to make things work for himself. He lost sight of God. He lost sight of God's kingdom. He lost sight of God's mission, and he turned to his own ways. His wives led his heart away from the Lord. Think of that expression. How often are our hearts led away from the Lord? They're not ripped away or we change allegiances. They're led away. The things of the world come and lead us away. And what's even more scary is when we are with Christ, when we have the Holy Spirit living in us, our sinful nature doesn't have that leash on us to pull us anymore because we got something fighting back against it. That being led away is a conscious and intentional decision on our part. That's when we start compromising, when we start deciding, okay, maybe I can do a little bit of this here and serve a little bit of Baal here and Asherah there and marry you to secure this trade deal for my nation. It's that's, that's a gradual being led away from God. And we get led away from God's kingdom. It's our own kingdom. It's everything else. It's God's way or the other way. God's way is not the best way. It's the only way. And yes, yeah, so it's a good thing to build a strong and a strong and prosperous kingdom for the benefit of the people. Absolutely. I'd rather live in a nation where we, we paid five for a liter of petrol, But this can never be more important than God's kingdom. And often what we'll see where the united monarchy went wrong is because the leaders put their motives above those of the Lord. It's when King Saul and David and Solomon started looking to their own interests, started trying to make themselves a little bit more comfortable. Help them cope with what was going on, maybe. Becoming confident in themselves. The important thing is not to neglect the mission. When Israel neglected their mission, we see the ripping, we see the tearing apart, we see unity being broken down, we see division. But when they had their mission to build God's kingdom, we see them being a prosperous and strong nation. As a church, when we have a mission to build build God's kingdom, that's when we're going to be strong and united. That's when we're going to sing songs like, The Lord has given a land of good things. I will press in and make them mine. Not for me, but for God. I'll know His power. I'll know His glory. In His kingdom, I will shine. But when we start making differences, divisions things start breaking down. When we start fighting with other believers because we need two-ply toilet paper instead of one-ply toilet paper. Or the teacups. Those teacups are for the ladies and the men mustn't use them because they make it dirty with their grubby fingers. Or I don't want to sit next to so-and-so because... She's too loud when she's singing. That's when we start creating divisions. And that's when things start to go wrong. We see it on a grand scale yeah, with the nation of Israel. But it starts with the little things. Starts with the little things in our hearts. And that's what we need to watch. Because if it starts going wrong, yeah, it's going to go wrong over there. We need to get it right in the church. We need to get it right here with this body of believers. Hebrews twelve, twenty eight. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that's the other thing. Do we want the kingdom of this world or do we want God's kingdom? I want God's kingdom, why? Because it's eternal, it cannot be shaken because he has redeemed me, ransomed me, appointed me, anointed me, chosen me as his his child, made me heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. This is the kingdom to be a part of. This is the eternal kingdom, a kingdom which is not of this world. Since we receive this kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Are we doing that? Are we doing that? The fact is we are part of God's kingdom and the king is Jesus. We are either part of the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God. If we're part of the kingdom of God, our king is King Jesus and his kingdom comes first. We need to build his kingdom before we can build our own kingdoms. He has mended divisions. He has pursued and attained righteousness. And Christ is building God's kingdom. And he will build his kingdom. We can either be a part of it or not. But he's going to build his kingdom. He's going to. Are we going to show that acceptable service with reverence and awe to him? Are we going to offer up the sacrifices that we need to. When Israel was successful and united, their leaders understood their mission. When leaders understand their mission, they lead a strong and united people, as we can see from the good times of the united monarchy in Israel. When they started to put their own priorities first, however, not only did they shipwreck their own lives, but the nation as well. It starts here, and it translates into everything else. Godly leaders build God's kingdom first. Amen. So to conclude, a godly leader, we need a godly leader to mend divisions, godly leader to pursue righteousness, and a godly leader to build God's kingdom. When Israel was united and strong, this is what was happening. When the church is united and strong, this is, is what is happening. When the, churches is not, when the church is not united, when they're full of divisions, this is what needs to be happening. Like I said, it needs to start here. It needs to start here before it can grow and spread. If we want to change the nation, if we want revival in this nation, it needs to start in our own hearts and it needs to happen in the churches. Amen.